0: This podcast was made possible by funding from Invitae, providing genetic testing services to the HCM community and other genetic disorders. For more information, visit 4HCM.org. When diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there is a very complex maze that patients have to navigate through to better understand their disease. One confounding issue is the differentiation between symptoms related to their cardiac condition and the risk associated with their cardiac condition. Symptoms are pretty easily understood by most people. You feel something. You feel chest tightness, you feel your heart race, you feel palpitations, or you feel your heartbeat. Some people hear it. Some people watch their chest rise. Some people get short of breath while sitting still. Some people get short of breath with exercise, stairs, and more pronounced so after meals. These are symptoms. They are easy to communicate, to medicate, and to potentially treat with such things as surgery or alcohol septal ablation for obstruction. What's more complicated is understanding risk of sudden cardiac arrest. Now, one would think intuitively, and they would be incorrect, that symptoms equal risk 100% of the time, and it's simply not true in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy somebody can have no or minimal symptoms and be evaluated to be at high risk for sudden cardiac arrest. These risk factors have been studied for years. And while there is some debate among professionals about which risk factors hold the highest amount of weight or newer risk factors coming on, experts in the field of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy treatment and management Know that the following items are viewed as high risk phenotypes. First, and obviously, a previous cardiac arrest puts you at higher risk of having a second cardiac arrest. So that one's kind of easy. Once you've had an arrest, you tend to take it seriously because that arrest could be considered a symptom because something physically happened to you. The rest of the risk factors are a bit more nuanced. First, would be a family history of sudden death of one or more first-degree family members, definitively, arguably second-degree family members. Number one, family member has died suddenly and unexpectedly from HCM, specifically under the age of about 50-55. That's a high-risk person. Another risk factor is the evidence of multiple or recurrent non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, or NSVT. This is a type of arrhythmia, irregular heartbeat. When it is three or more episodes or three or more beats at 120 beats per minute or greater. So now we're getting into real specifics, right? Another risk factor would be a history of syncope, passing out, not related to obstruction, and has occurred more than one time. So if you're fainting, and they can explain the why, it was a very hot day, you were standing up, you were dehydrated, that's one thing. But out of the blue, sitting at your desk, you black out, or you blacked out in a a normal day without being sick, without being around high temperatures, or dehydration. These are things that we take very seriously, and they're thought to be arrhythmic in nature. Another risk factor would be massive hypertrophy. And massive hypertrophy means any portion of the left ventricle is greater than 3.0, so 3 centimeters, in an adult. In a child, this number might be a bit smaller, but you'd have to look at body surface index, and you would have to look at variables for that child and their age, and you would work with a pediatric cardiologist to help determine where that line should be for the child. Other risk factors include late gadolinium enhancement, which is identified through a cardiac MRI. This is an infusion of an agent called gadolinium that turns portions of the myocardium or the heart muscle to white when there is scarring apparent in the heart. So this scar burden or this LGE percentage tells you how much of the heart is actually scar. And just by what I'm explaining there, scar should not be in the heart, right? So high degree of scar, which is valued by today's standard in 2020, at 15% or greater, is viewed as a high-risk phenotype. So we've broken this down to a previous cardiac arrest, a family history of cardiac arrest, non-sustained ventricular tachycardia recurrent at a rate of 120 or greater, three or more beats, late gadolinium enhancement, and recurrent syncope. Those are the big Risk factor markers. There are other risk factor markers, which could include a hypotensive blood pressure response on treadmill without obstruction present. Uh, Atrial fibrillation is a minor risk factor. High, high gradients could be considered a risk factor as a secondary risk factor. And then there's some data on double gene mutations that has still yet to be completely vetted out, but we keep a close eye on those. So if you're viewed to be at high risk by any of these factors, high risk factors, these are places where you want to put in an implantable defibrillator. Again, those risk factors need not be 100% associated with symptoms. You can have NSVT, non sustained ventricular tachycardia, abnormal heart rhythm, and not feel it. It doesn't mean it's not dangerous. So if you are going to be evaluated by an HCM specialist or even a general cardiologist, it is critically important that you evaluate your risk on an ongoing basis. You shouldn't be thinking about it every single day of your life. Am I at risk today and I wasn't yesterday? But you should periodically, annually, or maybe every 18 to 24 months, make sure that you're getting a risk assessment which would include a halter monitor or an event monitor, an echocardiogram, a checkup with your cardiologist, a review of all your symptoms, a review of your family history. When you put all of these pieces together, you can create a very clear picture of your known risk factors as of that day. I will pause and tell you an important message that we're not 100% on risk stratification. We're pretty darn good right now at identifying high-risk people. We're pretty good at defining mid-level risk, and we're pretty good at defining low risk. But in none of these categories should it be confused with zero risk. There is never zero risk of sudden cardiac arrest, but in some populations the risk might be calculated at under 1% per year. If you are low risk, you can't say no risk. And that confuses people. So we tend to use percentages over a five-year period. And the numbers that certain literature has pointed to is 4% per year or greater is a moderate risk. And 6% per year over a five-year period uh, is considered high risk. So we're never in the you know ridiculously high, you know, there's a 99% chance I'm going to have a cardiac arrest. It doesn't work that way we're looking at numbers in the area of 5 to 6 to 7% being higher risk and under 4% being low risk and there's that moderate space in between so it's really important to go over these numbers regularly with your physician and if it's determined that your risk is higher than you and your physician are comfortable with an implantable defibrillator could be considered if they're low you still may want to have a conversation with your physician about the benefits versus the risks of having an implantable defibrillator. The goal of this particular podcast is to help you understand the difference between high risk and symptoms. And I'm bringing this to you today because on our Facebook community, there's been some communications about what is the difference between high risk and symptoms. And so we've had this discussion in social media And we did a little conversation about this last week, only to come to the office on a Wednesday morning and get a phone call from a mother who has a 33-year-old son who had a cardiac arrest on Monday. And he had not been to get evaluated by a center of excellence in a long time because he didn't have any symptoms, so he thought he was okay. That brought to mind the story of Mitchell Cole and Cole Mitchell. So Mitchell Cole was a former soccer player in the UK who was diagnosed with HCM, was evaluated to be at high risk, but opted not to get an implantable defibrillator because he was waiting to time it to a life event and he wanted to, you know, wait till after his daughter was born and then he would consider doing it. And you can look at that video on the HCMA's YouTube site and see the interview with him that he was, you know, leaning towards getting a device soon. Unfortunately, six months after that video, he passed away from sudden cardiac arrest. And later in this podcast, you're going to hear an interview with a young man named Cole Mitchell, who was Boy Scout at the time that I first met him. And now he works for the Boy Scouts and is not a professional soccer player. And the other was a professional soccer player in the UK. And one got an ICD that saved his life and one needed an ICD and his life was lost because he didn't have it. So it's an interesting story of the tale of two Mitchell Coles or Cole Mitchells and why ICD implantation is critically important. Hi, Cole. Thank you for joining us on Tales from the Heart. So how was the experience of getting the actual implantable defibrillator put in? Was it painful? Was it scary? What were you thinking?
1: Before I got it done, um, you know, I was thinking that it was going to be painful. It was going to hurt. It was going to make me look weird. um, You know, that life was going to be so different, so drastically different. You know, when I did get it done, it really didn't hurt, all things considered. Nothing really changed in my life. It was pretty easy, actually, if easy is the right word for it.
0: So you get the device put in. You're not a robot. You just have this little bump in your chest and things kind of go back to normal, right? Right, yeah. Until one night, something happened. Can you tell me about that night and that morning?
1: Sure. You know, at the time, I didn't realize anything had happened. Uh, watching TV on the couch, I was supposed to be doing homework, but procrastinating as any good 13- or 14-year-old does. Actually, I believe I was 15 at that point. But uh, I just remember waking up and just feeling you know, different, but so just thought it was one of those dreams where you just wake up and continue about your day. So I just went back to sleep, and uh, the next day, I got home from school, and there was a phone call. That the hospital had called and said they got an alert that my device, uh, the ICD, the defibrillator, had gone off. My mom and I were both confused. We said, "Oh, we didn't feel anything. We didn't see anything." And then we did go into the the hospital, and they checked it and said, "Sure enough, I had um, an appropriate shock. And uh, if it hadn't gone off, I probably wouldn't even be here to record this." You can read all those stories online or hear on the news about things like that happening. But when it happens to you, it's just a a really odd feeling. The biggest thing I felt was grateful for everyone in my life that had helped me along uh, that path and had ultimately convinced me to get it.
0: So every time I hear that story, it sends chills down my spine because the time between you finding out you needed the defibrillator, the procrastination to get you to agree to the therapy, getting the device in, and the appropriate shock if memory serves me correctly, about a 10-month window from start to finish. Does that sound about right?
1: That sounds about right, yeah. It it wasn't much longer than 10 months, if it was.
0: Yeah, I I think it was three or four months from the implant to the first shock. It happened in your sleep. So had you not gotten the defibrillator, that could have been a life-ending event. Instead, you just got up the next day and went to school. So we assessed risk with an HCMA-recognized center of excellence. You got the device put in, and three or four months later, it went off and saved your life. And since then, it's been quietly sitting in your chest, just waiting for you to need it. Is that about it?
1: It feels good knowing it's there. Because, you know, ultimately, what I don't want to happen is for something bad to happen to me. And then I leave all the people that care about me behind. That's the biggest, biggest fear.
0: If... You could speak to another young person who is told you have a disease that you might not feel, but it's placing you at risk and you need this technology. What would you tell that young person today about taking the actions to protect their life? I I
1: would tell them that I was there in that scenario and I would share the story that got me there. I know at that age, one of the big things is that you don't really listen to someone unless you can relate to them. I'd make sure they could understand that. And then I'd basically just tell them to, to get it done and listen to the experts. They're the experts for a reason.
0: I hope you find this conversation informative. If you're on the fence about to ICD or not to ICD uh, with HCM, I would encourage you to have a nice long conversation with an HCM expert. You can always find our HCMA recognized center of excellence directory on our website at 4HCM.org. And hopefully you can find a physician that can help you make good choices for yourself and your family. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. The HCMA would like to thank Rode Microphones for their support of this podcast. Rode Microphones generously donated the Rodecaster Pro soundboard to help make this podcast possible and to help us sound so good. Thank you, Rode Microphones, for your support.